Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Previously on Maverick. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened. Picture this scene. A woman sits alone on a darkened stage. The hum of a single violin pierces the otherwise silent theater. As the music swells, another figure appears on stage. He announces to the woman that she's with child, and suddenly her voice joins his in harmony, celebrating the news of the coming Messiah. This is the opening scene of a two and a half hour musical about the life of Jesus. And it was written by a Muslim in North Africa. You're listening to Maverick, and in this episode, we're looking at a region that has ancient Christian roots. Some of the world's oldest churches have been found here, and important church fathers like Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, and even St. Augustine come from this region. But despite its place in early church history, North Africa is almost 99% Muslim. So what happened? And what's happening now as those tides begin to shift? You know, geography shapes destiny <laughs> in many respects. And so uh, North Africa, from Libya across the Western Sahara, is shaped by the sea to their north and the Sahara to their south. So their life is sort of lived in that tension between uh, cities on the coast and uh, thriving trade that's happened over the centuries with Europe and with other places uh, in the Muslim world. And then to the south, uh, these caravans of Tuaregs and Bedouin who travel across the Sahara down to the sub-Saharan lands where they acquire slaves and uh, bring them to the north for trade at their ports there. And it's one of the reasons why bringing the gospel into North Africa is still burdened with this invisible baggage of uh, centuries of uh, wars and struggles between the West and the Islamic world. And that's made it difficult for uh, North Africans historically to embrace Christianity because it's seen as a capitulation to foreigners. So somewhere along the line, the message of Christianity became coupled with foreign invasion and government overreach, and it lost its place in North African hearts. But over the years, European influence was pushed out as Islamic governments took over. 
But in some places like Algeria, that transfer of power didn't end up being the liberation people hoped for. By the 1990s, Algerians were fed up with the ruling party, and they voted to replace the National Liberation Front. And uh, this led to a crisis because the FLN refused to leave power. They canceled runoff elections, and uh, this resulted in all sorts of clashes with the population in Algeria, uh, leading to a military coup. And uh, the failed negotiations that followed caused the entire country to dissolve into civil war, marking the decade that followed as the dark decade. At that time, when the civil war started here, that was the army or the government against the Muslim fundamentalists. This is Yusuf Orhaman. He's from Algeria, and he pastored a church there during the dark decade. And the Muslim fundamentalists here, their goal, of course, is to overthrow the government and establish an Islamic state. So that uh, was a very bad war, and a thousand people were killed, and the economy was very bad, and there was no security whatsoever. So one of the striking characteristics of the uh, the dark decade was the method of war. Guerrilla warfare was really uh, honed to a, a fine peak. Uh, the idea was that if you could terrorize your opponent, then uh, you could psychologically defeat them before you actually met them with military clashes. So we had reports of people having their throats slit, uh, of uh, pregnant women being cut open, babies being killed, entire villages that were perceived as being aligned with the other side, being wiped out, uh, people executed. And the striking thing about all this was this was um, not Algerian Muslims fighting against a European colonial power anymore. This was Algerian Muslims fighting against Algerian Muslims. But during the Civil War, many people were fed up with Islam, with this killing, with this slaughtering in the name of Allah, in the name of Jihad, in the name of whatever. And then people start to question the Islamic faith. And with the backdrop of this civil war, where people were experiencing death and destruction and unrest around every corner, there was something else happening simultaneously. As more and more people were encountering Jesus, they were experiencing healing and answered prayers. And that juxtaposition between what they were facing in the warring world around them and what they were seeing in Jesus became a catalyst for movements. So in this particular country in North Africa, um, a number of the people, as they shared their stories with me, shared when God became real to them and personal to them. It, it really happened when they called out to him or someone prayed to him on their behalf and he showed up. And one of them was this, uh, this gentleman named uh, Reda. It was July and we were having a soccer tournament in our village. There was a team at the tournament who was different from us. The team was made up of Arabs and Berbers. At night when the other teams were drinking and partying, they were reading a book together at their camp. Greta's team had a semi-finals match and he was supposed to play in it. But that morning, he woke up with a high fever and chills. It was very hot but I wrapped myself in a blanket and went to the sidelines to watch my team play. And some people from the other team who were 
Christians. They came to him and said, we have some medicine in our camp. Would you like to come with us? We'll give you some. And when I got to their camp, they said to me, would you like medicine or would you like us to pray for you in Jesus' name? I thought to myself, I can always get medicine, but this is a good chance to prove that Jesus isn't real. So I told them to pray for me. And they prayed for his healing in Jesus' name. And he said, immediately, this fever just left him and the chills stopped. And usually when something like that happens, he said, you're, you're very weak and you're, you just have to go lie down for a while. But he had all of his energy back. It's like a light switch was, was flipped. And he felt great, and he rushed out to the soccer field without even saying thank you to these guys. He rushed out to the soccer field and played the rest of the game. And it was a good game. I played very well, and my team won. But after the game, I started to wonder, who is this Jesus that can heal? So I went back to the other team and asked them more questions. Every night that week, my teammates and I would go to their camp and hear from their book. Retta and his fellow soccer players saw God answer many prayers that week, and the miracles they experienced made them want to know more. Before that soccer tournament was over, Retta and 40 other players had been led to Christ. Years after that first encounter with Jesus, Retta was helping lead a church, and they organized a week of prayer and Bible study. They had invited believers from the surrounding villages to come and join them. We had a great week together, but when we were finished, the Lord said, Now that your week is over, my week can begin. We had no more provisions though, so the Lord said, Now you will enter into a fast. Retta talks about how impactful that week was. He said that the fast in and of itself was a miracle for them because they had never done anything like that before. But throughout that week, they experienced the Holy Spirit in incredible ways deliverances, healings, revelations. And they loved it so much, they did it again a few years later. At our second gathering, God revealed to us that our country was about to go through difficult times with much bloodshed. But He said, Do not be afraid. I will protect you. Our country entered into years of terror and 100,000 citizens were killed. During those years was a great explosion of growth that happened in the churches. We had freedom because the government was occupied with terrorists. Retta says that throughout those years of civil unrest, not a single local Christian was killed. And while that claim sounds pretty hard to believe, he isn't the only one making it. David encountered several people who talked about the supernatural way God protected his people despite the dangers that surrounded them. There was uh, another fellow I talked to, um, and he told me that uh, he was conscripted into the military when they had a big civil war in his country. And one morning he read the passage from Psalm 91 that said, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And later that same day, his battalion was ambushed and everyone in it was killed except for him. He said when he returned back to his uh, command post, he was interrogated and then thrown into jail because they thought he must have had something to do with the attack since he was the only one who survived it. Stories like these echoed through so many of the conversations David had. 
And while every movement has many contributing factors and we can't dumb it down to one thing God uses, it's clear that people in North Africa are encountering Jesus in supernatural ways, and it's changing them. When they prayed to God, you know, he showed up, he was there, and it really was a revelation to them that this is not just a changing of religious identity. It was really a relationship that they now had with God. He knew who they were. He knew their name. He understood when they prayed to him in their language, rather than having to memorize, you know, Quranic and Arabic prayers. Now they were personally communicating with God, and he was responding to that communication. He was communicating with them as well. And that shifting from impersonal religiosity to a very personal God became a huge catalyst for movements, not only in North Africa, but all across the Muslim world. And that's the part of the power of Christianity is that God became one of us. He learned a language. He took on the culture, developed a, uh, a, an aptitude for the, the tastes and flavors of a particular people. And in doing that, he endorsed every people. Islam can't do that. Islam, by definition, is an Arabizing force that says, you know, Arabic is the language of God. And if you want to pray to God, you pray in Arabic. You want to understand God, you learn to read Arabic so you can read the Quran. And that's so contrary to Christianity. So indigenization is inherent to real Christianity. But, and we, that's a theme that runs through really all the movements that we encounter, you know, that it's kind of like it's our movement. God came to us and he loves us. This is our day of salvation. And it's unique to each people. And for the Berber people of North Africa, one way that God became personal to them was through the image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Partly because they were shepherds and they knew what it meant to have a flock and care for sheep. But that image also resonated with them as people who needed to be cared for and who saw God show up and answer their prayers again and again. And so Jesus as the Good Shepherd sort of became one of the unique marks of these North African movements. I was really struck in almost every home it seemed like I went into across North Africa, I would see this framed picture on the wall of Jesus holding a sheep, a little lamb. It was either in his arms or it was over his shoulders like the good shepherd carrying the sheep. You know, in a time when the, the whole country had been uh, racked by civil war, by uh, contests against the colonial powers, a lot of death and destruction. The thought that Jesus was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, it seemed to give them a sense of comfort and assurance that whatever happened, they were in his care. And what's interesting to me is that even for a man named Rafiq, who didn't grow up in North Africa or have a shepherding background, it was the same image of Jesus that caught his attention and ultimately led him to move back to North Africa to live among his people there. I am a North African Berber, but I grew up in France. I was raised in a Muslim home, but I was really more like a French atheist. I just lived my life not thinking about spiritual things. 
Rafik's main focus was music. He loved music and played many different instruments. From a young age, he wrote songs, and eventually a few of them were published and did really well. I was under a contract with a large international recording studio when my bosses came to me and said, you know, musicals are doing really well right now in America and Europe. You should think about writing a musical. I thought it was a good idea, but I didn't know what to write about. He left that conversation and was already running through some ideas as he was walking down the street. But it started to rain, so he darted into the doorway of a nearby building. He was standing there, smoking his cigarette, when he noticed that the building was a Catholic church. It was the first time I had ever been into a church. I looked up and there was a large image of Jesus hanging on the cross. Next to it was a picture with the words, The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I wondered what kind of person would be such a good and loving shepherd that they would die for someone else. I was thinking about all this when the thought hit me. The life of Jesus would be a great subject for a musical. He asked the priest for information on the life of Jesus, and the priest held out a Bible. But Rafik wouldn't take it. He told him he didn't want to have to read all of that and asked for just the parts about Jesus. So the priest came back with a book of just the four Gospels, and Rafik left with it. I started reading the Gospels over and over. I would dream about music and about Jesus. And during the time, my friends warned me. They said, you know, you must be careful about this Jesus. He can take over your life. I just looked at my friends and said to them, he already has me. As he was writing it, Rafik's wife helped him craft the storyboards for his musical. And through that process, she fell in love with Jesus too. Within just a few weeks, not only were their lives changed, but Rafik had written a two-hour musical about the life of Jesus. And he took it back to his bosses at the recording studio. They sat and listened to this whole thing from the, the announcement of the birth of Jesus all the way through to the resurrection. And they listened and said, this is great. We should go with this. But then within a, a, a few months of that time, the, uh, the movie by uh, Mel Gibson came out, The Passion of the Christ. And it uh, provoked this backlash, especially from the Jewish community, because they saw the movie as being anti-Semitic and somehow posing them as being the villains. So my bosses pulled the plug on the musical, and I ended up losing my record deal as well. I left Paris and moved to North Africa, where I make music for the local church here. So I asked Rafik, I said, Rafik, you know, you're an incredible talent. He played some of his music for me, and it was just, just beautiful. I said, do you ever feel like your life is wasted, tucked away here in a small city in North Africa when you've been in Paris and you've had such great success there? He said, you know, I did. I did have questions. I wondered if maybe my life was wasted. And about a year ago, he said, I was kind of sad. And uh, I started having a dream. In my dream, there was a beautiful meadow and a clear stream flowing through it. The voice of an old man asked me, Rafiq, what do you see? I said I see a meadow. The voice said, what else do you see? I looked closer and saw a flock of sheep grazing in the meadow. And what else do you see? The voice asked again. I looked even closer and saw a shepherd boy playing music 
as he watched over the sheep. And the voice asked him, why is the shepherd boy playing music for the sheep? And Rafik answered, so that they'll know they belong to him. And the man said, you are that shepherd boy, and I want you to continue to produce this music so that my people will know they belong to me. Rafik says that after he woke up from that dream, he knew he was where he was supposed to be, in North Africa, playing music over God's people, bearing the image of Jesus as a watchful and loving shepherd. To me, one of the coolest things about these movements that are emerging is that they reveal to us uh, aspects of our faith that we might have missed or that wasn't as significant to us because we're from a different culture. But they saw nuances and emphases and perspectives on it that might have eluded us because we all have a particular set of lenses that we look through, you know, our culture, our way of seeing things. And that's really what I saw all across the these Muslim movements to Christ was the fullness of the body of Christ seeing the gospel, which is a multifaceted jewel. You know, the gospel and what Jesus did for us is not just one thing, it's everything. But we can't always see it because we come at it from one angle. And then when you hear this Bangladeshi or this North African Berber uh, or this um, Western South Asian Muslim from a, a Mujahideen background sees things that we don't see, it really just helps fulfill our understanding of the richness and, and dynamic multifacetedness of the gospel. The dynamic multifacetedness of the gospel. That's one of the biggest gifts we receive as we learn about what God is doing around the world. Because in every culture, the message of the gospel is good news. But why it's good, what makes it good, can change with every people group. How Jesus answers brokenness and addresses longings. What the character of God means as he breaks into lives. How the Spirit moves people to rise up and walk differently. There's nuance and emphasis and perspective that eludes us if we don't learn to see things from other cultural vantage points. And that's what's so beautiful about what God is doing in a group of North African Berbers who've come to know him as a good shepherd. Because through their stories and experiences, we can come to see him as a good shepherd too. And like them, we can be swept up in how he cares for the sheep he loves. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick Podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com. 